Hello everybody and welcome to the Kill Gem podcast. I'm Emma Lown and today we'll be speaking to Rob Simpson, Kill Gem's area sales manager for the North of England and together we'll be talking about all things clusterflies. Hi Rob, so how can I identify clusterflies from other types of flies? Well, I think the easiest thing to say is, it, is it, a clusterfly is a fly that clusters. Um, they go together. It's it's the activity of the fly that makes it a a, a clusterfly because there are various species of clusterflies out there. But most of the time that we're talking about clusterflies, we are talking about the species Bellinia rudis. Um, I can tell you that the, the Bellinia rudis was one of the was one of the uh, uh, flies that I could always diagnose over the phone. So when somebody gave me a call and said, I've got these flies around and they're all over the place, and I'd say, are they sort of fairly fat, slow flies and are they doing backspins on your window ledges? And they'd say, yes. And I'd say, well, they're, they're cluster flies then. And it was nearly always Polini rudis that were, that were doing that. So Polini rudis is about six millimetres um, long, so... Bigger than an housefly, maybe not as big as a, as a, a big fat blue bottle. Um, usually very docile. They've got um, golden hairs over them and usually a checkerboard, uh, sort of dark and light patches on, um, on the abdomen. Um, different species, though, do look completely different. And how long do they um, usually live for? Well, the the life cycle really does depend on the outdoors environment. So all of the cluster flies, primarily, most of the time, are living outside in fields, doing their thing out there. They're not a bother to, to, to people as such. Um, they're just cracking on with their life out there. And because they're living out in the fields, they are really affected by ambient temperatures. So if we have if we have a really warm summer, then they can actually um, go through more cycles. You can certainly with Polinia rudis, you can maybe get up to four cycles in a in a year, um, four generations. Usually, that's more like two. Uh, I think that would be, uh, be be more usual. But in those warm years where um, everything's uh, where, where things are, are accelerated. Those warm years are usually very dry years in the UK. Um, um, dry years are being that a lot of their environments under threat because um, they don't they don't get the wet rotting leaf matter. Um, it's just dust that's on the on the floor, and the earthworms are, are as prevalent. Um, the earthworms are a very vital part of it. The cluster flies life cycle, or certainly Polynesia rudis, anyway. How do clusterflies behave during different seasons? Okay, so for most of the year, what they're doing is they're, they're the adults are laying eggs in the in the soil. Um, the um, larvae are hatching them, but they hatch there. They're really very small, and then they they penetrate into the soil and they go find earthworms. Um, and when they found an earthworm, they latch onto the side of it and they start to burrow into the, into the earthworm. And then you get the full-on alien-esque 
uh, scenario where they parasitize the, uh, the the earthworm and they eat it from the inside out, basically, and then pop out of the earthworm. The earthworm's about to die, and then they go back into the soil, pupate, out comes the adult, uh, and then the whole cycle goes over again. However, when the temperature starts to drop, um, they can't go through that cycle anymore. So what they they would do naturally is that they would then go and try and find somewhere to overwinter, which would normally be caves, tree hollows, something like that. Then along come us, and people decided we're going to build these buildings everywhere, and we're going to put things like roof spaces in them, which are the most amazingly heated uh, tree hollows and caves. And clusterflies thickness this is absolutely magnificent and the finest place to, to overwinter. So they all go into there. And one of the things that helps them cluster is that they pump out a, a, a pheromone, they leave the sort of pheromone trails. So the, a clusterfly can detect that there's a nice place to be a clusterfly over there. So they, they follow their own pheromone trails um, and all end up together. Sort of like a, an aggregation pheromone that the bedbugs do. Something similar ish. Technical would probably take me up on that one, but it, it, it feels very similar. Um, and then they overwinter. And that's when they get in everybody's way. And that's when they become a problem. That's when they become a pest. With the, with the cluster flies, um, that, when I started out in pest control, I started out in Manchester. Um, and I did sort of from central Manchester in a, in a sort of a wedge shape coming out and going into North Cheshire. And cluster flies were never a problem in Manchester. In a, in a tightly packed urban environment, they really weren't getting uh, too many problems with them. Yeah, they, had, they had their own problems uh, with, with cockroaches and the like, um, but not cluster flies. It's only when you came south out of Manchester and you got to the posh areas where all the parks were, and uh, all the space, all the, all the spaces were, and the houses, the bigger gardens. Yeah. This is when you started to get the problems with cluster flies, and then as you moved out of that into the more rural areas, it just became a, 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 it just became part of life. So why did they all cluster together in Manchester? Um, it's just to, it's just to overwinter. It's that pheromone um, scent that brings them together, um, which they they've really developed to go to to message each other that this is a nice place to be. Right. Um, that's that's the way that they do it. And quite a lot of the time, you will get cluster flies, say Polygia rumpus, that are in there, but you may get other species of fly clustering uh, in there as well. And are they harmful to humans or pets? No, in a short answer, not really. They, uh, they're not overly interested in human food. So something like a housefly or a lesser housefly that will switch from living on dung or, or waste or bins and then move to food and then back again. They're a big contamination risk. Um. These ones aren't really interested in anything that we're doing. They just tend to, you know, the only thing that we have done is put up these lovely places for them to overwinter, and, and we're sort of irrelevant to them. What they become is an absolute nuisance pest um, because they'll start off, and it's not always the case because 
they don't always read the books about themselves. But they will start off in a roof space, but then they'll start to filter down mm. through a building. Um, so, for example, you, you you start up with the upstairs rooms. We'll have all these um, big fat flies all over their window ledge. Uh, and there will be big, big numbers. So people will be hoovering up these flies all the time. And you're not going to you're not going to run out of flies to hoover up. Now I. Now, if that is in a house, it's annoying. If it's in a place of work, it's annoying. And then you've also got your sort of health and safety at work act and implications of that and of providing a safe place to be and the responsibilities of, of, of having people working in an environment that is full of flies. You said before that you in a previous life you worked in a place that was full of flies. That's not usually a nice place to work. So that causes that employer a problem. And I have had them. I used to look after um, a large pharmaceutical site. And they had fully hermetically sealed labs that were under pressure. Um, you would have to be suited and booted at, at, to, to, to get in there. You'd have to go through double doors and all of that to be an absolute totally clean room. But the cluster flies would still get in there. They would still find a way. So having a a cluster fly like that in a in a in a, uh, a pharmaceutical manufacturing or testing lab becomes a major risk to that to that um, lab. So, what are the best ways to stop them coming in? <laughs> you don't, and and. Many people will try and find ways to do it. I've seen people try and cork up all the gaps and holes and, and, and things like that. Cluster flies are designed to get into small spaces to overwinter. The buildings that we have are designed to let air in and out of the building. That way we um, don't, um, sort of, we don't suffocate in our own homes. But also to let the building break uh, and let moisture that we're pumping out all the time go out. So you, if you ever could do anything in the in the building trade, they will talk about a building breathing. That's just an open door for a cluster fly. So they, it's incredibly difficult to stop cluster flies getting into um, a, a a roof space or something like that. Now you could stop them from getting into sort of all, all the parts of a building with roofing measures and insect screens and things like that. But that's just over windows. That's not over an entire roof. It's not that they're coming in under the slates and, and filtering down through the building that way. So there are measures, normal proofing measures that you can take that will reduce the numbers, maybe. Yeah. But I would I would suggest that well and then once once they've got it, they know where that's that is. That like I said they they communicate with each other with these they sort of set marking pheromones. Um, and that other ones they'll actively bring other ones in. And what you also find um is if a house has a problem one year, it'll have the problem the next year. Yeah. And the next year and the next year. They will hit certain properties over and over again or, or lines of properties if it's uh, you know a line of terraced houses, the cluster flies are back again. And usually that's this time of year, so that's um, autumn, 
which is when they're coming in. And then you do get, then it'll go quiet. It'll go quiet over winter because they are in full dormant stages. If it heats up massively, you might have a few knocking around. But then come spring, they're going back out again. They're going, they're waking up and going out the other way. So you may get the, the calls uh, in spring as well. And then summer, who cares about cost of life? They just don't come on our radar very much. Certainly, calling your route is such a thing. So are there any natural or chemical repellents for cluster flies? Uh, no doubt somebody on Amazon will be trying to find some sort of uh, a, a, a natural repellent of peppermint oil. It's always peppermint oil. Uh, I don't know of anything that's been proven to work as a repellent for them, um, pushing them out. Usually treatment is... Exactly that. It is some sorts of, of, of treatments that will happen once or twice at the start of the fair season. So in the autumn, maybe another treatment um, in um, in the spring as well. I have seen people try and clean or disinfect um, a, a, a roof space to in an attempt to get rid of those um, scouting pheromones that we were talking about. But I, I don't know how effective that actually is. Um, I, 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 some people may have had some luck, but I don't think it, I don't think I, there is anything out there that yes, that definitely works. You just put this solution and pump it out into that space, mm-hmm. and you will not have any flies uh, coming back in. Um, it, most of the treatment will centre around some sorts of insecticidal treatment, particularly. Um, fogging or ULB because you're treating the whole space um, or in, in some cases there are specialist um, fly killers um, that are out there that the flies go into and because we're talking huge numbers and they would overwhelm a typical um, fly killer, electronic fly killer with a UV um, so the cluster fly units literally have no bottom on them and you put them over a tin or a large bag or a sack, and you can, they, they will fill up in, in days. They will take out huge amounts um, of flies. The caveat with all of those treatments, especially the the, 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 the fly killers, one for the fly killers, make sure you, you're not a fire risk or anything like that, uh, but also bats, because very often when you're treating um, an issue with cluster flies, you're in an environment that is also very good for bats. So has that been found then? So it's like a bat ever ended up in a fly trap or on like an EFK? Unfortunately, like yes, it, yes, it has happened. Um, if I, I'll give you an example from many, many moons ago. And, and it's quite a good one because it it, it, it it ticks a lot of boxes on the, what the heck's going on here. I was called out to a house, quite a large property in the middle of nowhere, um, Staffordshire, I think it was off the top of my head. Uh, and I went out and I was fairly new to pest control. I probably only be doing it a year or so. Um, and I went to the, I went to the property, um, because they were having problems with flies and they did have flies in and around the, the, the window ledges that were in there. The problem was, was that they were creep bottles. Absolutely full of bright green, shiny, green bottle flies and I don't really come across 
read bottles very much because I spend most of my time working in Manchester and yeah. this is not big green bottle territory. Um, and I spent many, I mean, I must have spent 45, 50 minutes just sat there trying to mull over why on earth would there be green bottles in this sort of numbers in a perfectly clean house? Yeah. And I would say this, this was before the days of smartphones and Googling and, and anything like that because... I'm sorry, Emma, I, I am that old. Um, what it actually was, um, was green cluster fly. It wasn't green bottles at all. They do look very similar. They are of a, of a, of a similar sort of species. Um, but they, they have a different life cycle. I wasn't looking at sheep strike um, and them the eating bits of sheep. Um, they, they were They were breeding out in the fields, they don't have the earthworm stuff, they're feeding more off dung, but then they were clustering in the house. So once I'd worked that out, and I've worked out, I was dealing with cluster flies that were, that would act in a similar-ish way to Pelinia rudis. Right, okay, now I'm dealing with these, I've got to get up into the loft. Uh, they say in pest control, if you're ever dealing with, with people and that, that uh, the problem is to ask lots of open questions and get them to talk to you. This was an example when I probably should have asked them more open questions. Because what had actually happened is that uh, this lady in the house had uh, electricians in uh, to do some work and, and they go up into the roof space and they had a problem with the flies and they couldn't complete their work because this roof space was full of, of, of flies. And so they come down and said, look, you need to get someone in to have a look at this. And then we'll come once it's sorted, we'll come back and we'll do our whatever our electric work is, which is absolutely fine. However, because they were trying to be helpful people, um, what they did was they put up flypapers right. with all the best intentions and they put flypapers up in the loft, probably about four or five. And then, what? Four days, three, four days later, I'm now on site. I've worked out. We've got cluster flies. I, we've got cluster flies. I need to see the roof space. Let's go up there. This will be the source of, of the clustering. This is where the problem is. And I went up into the roof space to be faced with these um, fly papers. Uh, the quite terrible sight of a lot of bats caught on them. Right. And uh, that was not good at all. That poses that poses a, a, a you know, and any pest controller can find themselves in that scenario. Yeah. You know, even, even when they, you, you really hope that every pest controller out there is doing everything that they possibly can and not harming bats in anything that they're doing. But sometimes you walk into a place where somebody else has been in there and have done something, and then you, and, and then you've got to start to make a decision about what to do. And that, that that becomes tricky. So what now, happened with the boots? With the with the issue then on this property with the with the dead bats? Um, I I left the situation. Okay. In that scenario, I, I I just had to take a a sort of a, a decision. And then when I came down and I told her about it, I, listen, she was absolutely mortified. But. I have to say to her, I can't, I can't do anything in, in 
in this scenario. Yeah. One, I can't do any treatments in there because I know that you've got bats. But two, you have got to get these down. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get into a scenario if I start messing around with them and taking them away, You're liable. aren't they somehow becoming my responsibility? Yeah. Um, which I, 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 I'm sure there's a correct answer to it, but it's a horrible position to be in as a pest controller. Yeah. It, it does get you in a, in a, in a terrible conundrum. Um, what are you supposed to report this environmental crime to the police? Yeah. And this this poor person has this done all of this. So I don't know what the right answer was in that scenario. What I did was 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 sort of excuse myself from the situation um, and give the best advice that I could to that customer. Um, and then the, the once they had dealt with whatever else was 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 up there, then speak to bat specialist, the bat conservation trust, uh, and people like that, and then they can come and, and, and assess that roost, and then they can take things from there. Because bats quite complicated. You have summer roosts and winter roosts, and they'll decide which one it is. Sometimes you can't treat in a bat roost because the bats aren't there anymore. Right. Um, but I always let somebody else make that decision that knows a lot about bats. Um, and that's that's for the, uh, the the bat conservation trust, the bat societies, and they they have people all over the country. They will come out and assess a building for bats. But you think bats are something that, that anybody dealing with cluster flies needs to be very concerned about. And in everybody's basic training, it, it is how do you identify whether or not you've got a bat issue? How do you identify uh, the the, you know, the difference between mouse droppings and bat droppings? Um, how do how do you then how do you refer to what you can and can't do? The problem in that scenario is that that's obviously not in electricians' basic training. Prior right, bats are really a um, an integral part of it. That's the that's the yeah the biggest risk we're treating for cluster flies. Um, that, that uh, treating a cluster fly area is actually it's really simple. Any form of space. Um, treatment, so whether that be an aerosol, whether it be a fogger, whether it be a ULV, will treat that space. And they'll do a it'll do a really, really good job. And it will knock those numbers right down. It just doesn't stop any of the new ones coming back in again. So that's why you, you very often have to do that re- repeat treatment. And in the previous life of, of being a pestic, I would have people that knew that they were going to get a problem. You they they would sort of be on contract for cluster flies because you know that they're going to be arriving in autumn and come sort of the start mid-October you would go in there and, and you'd be booked in to go in there there then you go up into the roof space and sure enough all the flies are back in it's you know once you've identified what it is then you can safely treat um, again is that what they do to treat it then use like a fogger a best controller yeah so you, you, it's what's, what's known as a, 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 a space spray or a space treatment. Rather than treating a surface, you're treating a volume of air, uh, which is the entire roof space. So from a pesty's point of view, what they want to do is go, okay, I, I, I have decided that I have this pest species, so you wouldn't say Pelagia rudis, 
Um, I have checked and I have no evidence of any bat activity that's in place. Um, I have decided that I am going to use some sort of chemical control to knock these numbers down. And if you treat in the top of the roof space to take out the lion's share, and then you sort of further down the house, you can do all the treatments around the windows, uh, around and within window frames, then you can you can do a relatively good job and, and, and keep them under controls. And that's that's all you have to do. If, if they only ever see one a week, this is not a problem to most people. In that hermetically sealed lab, one a week in there would be would be a problem. But there was only one a week appearing in that lab because there were literally hundreds of thousands in the plant rooms above. To give you an idea with the cluster fly numbers, which you know, we'd be out sort of have mentioned, with Polinia rundis, it can be hundreds of thousands of flies. But there are other species um, that the numbers are phenomenal. I think the biggest recorded set of numbers of one cluster, if that's the, the correct terminology, of yellow swarming fly, I think was about 30 million. That's it for part one of our interview with Bob Simpson. Join us again next week for part two. Your plus points code for this week is conservation. That's Charlie, Oscar, November, Sierra, Echo, Romeo, Victor, Alpha, Tango, Indigo, Oscar, November. That's conservation. See you next week.